This is the Dope Black Dad Podcast. My name is Marvin Harrison. Um, I'm excited and sad and excited and sad. I'm joined today by Dr. Aziza and Anna, Dr. Anna as well. Dr. Anna and Aziza, how are you? Very good, thank you. But also- no, 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 too mild. I'm excited and sad. You have to bring the energy before we get solemn. How are you? You are on the Dope Black Dad Podcast, award-winning, multinational, uh, hey. award-winning podcast, <laughs> The Black Dads. Okay, we are very excited, but equally sad and excited. Uh, absolutely. So a mixture of emotions, but we're definitely super honored to be here. Really psyched to finally be part of this podcast. Thanks for what having I, us. What I think is incredibly important is that we have to come together under happier circumstances. Like all black female doctors in the UK are getting a million pounds from the government. And then we'll come together and we'll have this this amazing conversation under happier circumstances and you'll buy me things. Is that a deal? A hundred. <laughs> so uh, Black Female Doctors UK is a non-profit organisation of medics, dentists, surgeons, scientists and PhD holders aimed at empowering and supporting each other and your community. Um, you're hoping to reach out to young black students at school level. Uh, black students are the group that are most often dissuaded from pursuing certain careers, usually less supported, most commonly over-policed and disproportionately sanctioned by the educational system. Uh, black females have a goal of to raise as much awareness and funds to support uh, the educational and legal needs of ethnic minority children who have been unjustly treated by schools and the police. As such, you've set up a Just Giving page to help tackle some of these issues the intention is for the funds raised to be given to a charity called Just For Kids Law, uh, who exists to help children and young people overcome all the difficulties they face from problems at school and issues with immigration status to trouble with police. You're also uh, the charity representing Child Q, whose appalling treatment from a school and the police bring, uh, being strip searched has left us all heartbroken and devastated. Um, there's a lot in there. You guys have, you know, done this what what has made you move what's what's the decisiveness of your action go ahead Anna so well basically when we heard the story it was really really heartbreaking knowing what she's gone through so then we felt like no child should be subjected to such experience and we felt really compelled to do something to help so we began reading around and then we wrote to a few MPs and the London Met as well, and which we've had responses back, by the way. And then we thought, what else can we do to support, um, you know, other children whose stories may not have been heard or may not have made headlines? So we read about the charity, and I spoke to the lawyer that first took the case when it happened in 2020, and then she explained uh, the dynamic of their work and how important it is. So. Basically, they work with children from all ethnic minority groups, including literally all kids, but majority are ethnic minority children. For example, last year, they worked with 782 children and 85% of these children were from ethnic minority backgrounds. So we felt that if we can raise funds to help support your work, maybe they will be able to help more children advocate for themselves, know their rights, support them with legal 
issues, education, and the list goes on. So that's where Absolutely. we are. And it really did um, hit home for, for us. Um, so Anna and I are both moms and we both have daughters as well as sons. So it just, uh, just thinking about our daughters coming home, um, having experienced something like that without us being present, someone protecting her being present really hit home for us. And um, it just, we felt that this is something that we need to shout out about we need to spread our voices about and we need to ensure that these sort of things do not continue to happen because they do keep happening and it's just unjust it's unfair and until we all gang up together which part of the fundraising and how we you know got in touch with you we just said you know what we need to stand united as a black community um, and that's how we got you involved we're really excited um, dope black dads dope black moms the motherhood group moms pride byp network um, involved to try and raise money towards the charity, as Anna said, um, that supports the children who are going through this. And again, who don't have the voices that they need. So Child Q's case happened two years ago and we only heard about it now. There's yeah. a small part of me that wants to reference the fact that I also can't believe that your mothers as well. This is slightly freaking me out. <laughs> And, and I'm, I'm, I want to see passports, but this is too much information. This should have been included in your bio so I could have processed that in advance because my face went, what? So, look, I, I feel like maybe I'm getting older. This is what's happening. You know, when you start to realize that, you know, young people are doing grown up stuff. And I don't even know how young you are, but young looking people are doing grown up stuff. Maybe I'm old. Maybe that's what's happening. And this is my realization. It was my birthday last week. So I feel, I feel Happy like, birthday. thank you. Um, just, to, just to kind of go into a bit more about Child Q because you know, I feel like everybody does know because it was such a violent experience that it, it was discussed for, for a good week and a half and it did culminate in the process in the protest. But Child Q, um, uh, she was called an official report into her case, which is 15 uh, in December 2020, when her teachers accused her of smelling like cannabis. After they failed to find drugs on her, the Met police officers were brought into the school to conduct a strip search. Uh, uh, you know, according to the reports by the City and Hackney Safeguarding Children Partnership, Child Q, who was having her period at the time, was made to remove her clothing, underwear, and a sanitary pad, spread her buttocks and cough. Her mother and aunt say that the incident has traumatized her. They say she now self-harms and screams in her sleep. Uh, they said that they no longer recognized the happy-go-lucky girl they used to know. Two of the police officers involved have been removed from frontline duty. But activists worry that this was not an isolated incident. Already looking at the facts, the numbers are astonishing. Ship searches of minors by Met Police are now are not new to ethnic minority, uh, especially in the black community. Between 2020 and 2021, 25 children under the age of 18 were strip searched. In 88% of the cases, nothing was found, and 60% of these children were black. These stats are obviously incredibly heartbreaking. A representative from Just for Kids Law also informed us that the they worked with 785 children and young people last year, helping them stand up for the legitimate rights and uh, entitlements of youth justice, housing, community care, immigration, education, and more. 82% uh, were from black and other ethnic minorities. Uh, and they need to raise over two million a year to keep their important work going. So I'm I'm sorry because I sound slightly annoyed 
uh, and frustrated as I'm speaking and I'm trying my best to not fall into the trap of putting all my energy into uh, the absurdities. I'm really focused on, you know, making sure people really understand, but also um, uh, get active and want to help. But I'm so annoyed at reading that. I, I actually couldn't even say the word buttocks because the idea connected with uh, have, having to actually do that. Now, now, full disclosure, I've had to experience a strip search also probably twice in my life. Um, and as I sit there and think about it, I think both times I was under 18 also. Um, and for boys, I think, for, especially boys, we, you know, we're probably a bit more in tune and aware um, of it happening and a bit more uh, accepting of it happening. I think there's something very specifically different when you do it in school, when you do it with someone that age at 15 and when it's a, a girl. And I think also um, the nature of her, her menstruating at the time feels very graphic. It feels such a massive violation. And then you want to understand, you know, the identity of these police officers and, you know, why wasn't her family contacted if it's connected to a school? You use a parent, you hand your children over to a school and you expect them to look after them until they return back to you. To think that something happens to them in that time is, it will make me livid because, you know, the trust is gone. How, how, how do you internalize that experience or that story? And where, where were you when you found out and what was your experience and response? Well, in all honesty, I don't think I can say my response on here. <laughs> but it's fair to say that I was really sad. I think I was at home in the kitchen. My husband uh, said to me, oh, have you heard what's been going on? I'm like, oh, what's happening? And then he said, no, you have to sit down and you have to read it yourself. I'm like, you're being too dramatic. Let me have a look. And then he showed me the report. And I sat there. I was literally fuming. My jaw was dropped. I could not believe that they would subject a child to this experience. Even if the child is, in quote, troubled, nobody deserves that. And it's such, um, they've taken her right of privacy. They've breached her, um, her body. It's, to me, I saw it as an assault. I know it's such a big word to say. I, I felt like it was a sexual assault because she couldn't say no. She was obliged to do what was being asked of her. And I felt like the people conducting this particular search, I was thinking, what was going through their mind? What did they think? Like, it's, it's just so bizarre for a child to go, for, even for me as an adult, and also as a doctor, I know the effect of, um, you know, that menstrual cycle, that time that you're on your period can have on your body and also on your psyche. So for all of that to happen at the time that she was actually menstruating, I thought it was really disgusting. I was really, really angry. But I can't say what else I said afterwards. <laughs> Yeah, no, Anna was really, really angry. I got a message from her at two o'clock whilst I was breastfeeding my son. <laughs> it's a long, um, open letter that she had drafted. Um, and to be completely honest, when you read the report and you go through it step by step, it really seemed as though they were trying to catch child Q out. Because it says clearly in the report that there was an incident a month prior where they suspected that perhaps she was carrying um, drugs, so cannabis, because she smelled of cannabis. But in that instance, they called her mom right away. And her mom clarified that, oh, she was just, she's probably presenting this way. So they, they said intoxicated because she was up late at night studying for her exams. 
on this occasion they didn't ring the mom i don't that i just it just boggles my mind that they didn't think you know even okay if they for instance they called i think they called the safe the safer police officer so the school did what they were supposed to do where they were when they suspect certain cases like this they called the safer police officer who then advised them to call um the police because they weren't available due to covid two police officers came one male one female and then they thought no we need we need um another female so another two police officers came one male one female and so you had four police officers you had the teachers as well and then you had this poor girl sat in a room after being pulled out of an examination um and then th- they all deliberate amongst themselves and apparently the people from the review can't confirm things because there's so many inconsistencies between all parties then they decide okay two female police officers are going to go and um, ex- examine her do this in- intimate search no appropriate auto auto was present and she goes through this while she's menstruating and as anna said as medics we can't do any type of intimate examination to a patient without first consenting cons- confirming their consent second ensuring asking if they want a chaperone regardless of what gender or sex they are um and then then we also clarify whether they're happy to be examined whilst they're menstruating because that can be quite personal for a lot of people um but this still went on uh, and god when when you think about the whole thing and when you read the report and it's 36 pages as you go on as you go through the pages you just how how did this happen how did this come to be and they've confirmed they concluded that it's just absolutely wrong everything they did wrong and they've essentially caused unnecessary distress and physical psychological distress to to a young child that's going to live with her for the rest of her life. What 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 would you let's pretend that this not isn't informed in any way shape or form. What would you say the center is of the lack of care of how child care was handled? They What's say the that there's there's potentially an element of the adultification bias when it comes to black minors. So apparently um the way authorities see young black people they see them as adults and they treat them as adults they automatically forget <laughs> about everything to do with um them being a child and they believe that that's an aspect to it and then the parents did mention in the report that they do believe that there was an element of racism because she was a black she is a black child and i think they also concluded in the report that racism had a significant factor to play in this and i think they are still investigating to see whether it was either conscious or unconscious that led to this yeah it still gives me goosebumps have, have you have you experienced the identification um of your existence i'm not sure how you were raised uh dr zizi you mentioned you was in international school and dr anna you were raised uh in in a city in a london school also like what what experiences did you guys have um in any institution So I went to school at um secondary school um Woolworth school on Old Can Road and mm-hmm. it was pretty rough uh I didn't really experience that in a sense but we did have a uh, police at the school I think it was more the community support police uh, figures mm. and uh, they normally search uh, the students for like 
drugs and knives, you know, as you enter the school. But, mm-hmm. you know, at that age, you kind of feel like, oh, maybe it's the area, is that right or not? You don't think about it that way. It becomes a norm and it becomes part mm-hmm. of you as you're growing up. It's only when I moved to a different area to go to university that I realized actually, like, it's actually not normal. That some of the things that I experienced and saw. So then that kind of shifted my thinking and and gradually I realized, okay, some of these things are actually like really odd and why would they do this? And why that Mm. I began questioning things more. Yeah. Uh, And what about you, Dr. Aziza? Um, Honestly, I, yeah, I went to international school in Saudi Arabia and then I came here 20 years ago and, and went to college. Um, I didn't really, I didn't get exposed to that sort of experience uh, when I, when I hear what you've been through and some of the stories that I hear today. Um, no, I haven't, I haven't gone through that. It's, it's really interesting because, you know, I, I grew up in Hackney and I went to school in Islington, uh, Highbury Grove, secondary school, primary school was St. John's. Primary school was pretty standardized. I don't think you interacted with, um, uh, police in any way, shape or form. Um, but I did interact with racism structurally, but also just socially. Uh, the area at the time, which is uh, early to mid nineties, was um, full of sort of race, deep racism, really um, direct. Very, I think the, the word bad word is overt racism. Um, but then in secondary school, um, we never had police in the school, but often the police would be outside the school. So there'll be rival schools who would come and try to fight us, and so police would intervene um we would have gangs from local areas or estates that would come through and then there would be an intervention a couple of the times we had adult men trying to fight us as school kids or shopkeepers and different things like that um so we became really common it became a common practice to interact with police and law in that way um but the probably the most shocking one and i didn't really understand that this was wrong until a few years ago when we were talking on a podcast but there used to be this thing called the id parade and what they would do is they'll round up and, and sort of coach uh, young boys to come in and fill in as the extra people in the ID parade. So there's a, there's a suspect and then the extra four to ten people who, who would make up the ID parade, they would like go to schools and say, you could be a part of this ID parade and they'll pay us £20. Um, but then what ends up happening is you end up being known to police primarily. Um, but my parents were never asked. Wow. I was 14 years old. So I was in school and I remember them and then being like, hey, mate, do you want to come and do this ID parade? And I was like, no. You know, you can be in the police officers, you're like, move from me. Like, oh, you can make 20 pounds. And when you're like 14 (laughs) years old from low income families, I can make 20 pounds by standing somewhere? Hell yeah, where do I go? (laughs) And I did it for like a year and a half. And I'd never told my mum because it was just like, it would just happen. It was so normal to me. It would be like, oh, instead of going to play football, after school, I'm going to go do an ID parade. And it was such a violation. It was only when uh, a case collapsed because the person who was robbed was robbed by someone in our school. It was, a, it was two people in our school were robbed and they did an ID parade with lots of people from our school. So the guy knew them all. So when he ID'd him from a lineup of everybody that he knew, the case then collapsed because it was like, well, he knew everybody. So he knew it wasn't any of them. Mm-hmm. And he knew it was him. So it, the ID parade was false. So the case collapsed. And so they stopped coming to our school to find that for, um, for those things. But as I think about it, it was kind of bizarre. And I feel like these types of structural abuses have been going on for a very, very long time. Mm. As I mentioned, 
16 years up growing in Hackney. We will be stri- I've been strip searched, I think, two, two times, if not three. Um, in, in terms of like, what do you think the impact is broadly on it? Like, it, we spoke, we saw uh, in the introduction, we spoke about GLQ is now self harming. What is the wider impact, in your view, um, for us being criminalized in that way? Audio adultification. I was actually going to throw it back at you because you've actually been through this. How did it make you feel twice as a 16 year old? What implication did that have for you? And how did you get past? How did you get to where you are at now so that we can hopefully educate our sons as well and children? Mm. To be honest, it's um, it's very, it's very, it was very traumatizing, but we didn't, I didn't understand what trauma was. So inherently you just felt small. You felt powerless. And what I realize now as an ad- adult is that events chip away at your idea of self. And you start lowering the bar for how people should interact with you, lowering your own expectations, your own self-worth. And then that has knock-on effects in other ways. Like you don't feel like you're worthy of anything mm. because you're just a number in a lineup or because, you know, that your, your words aren't powerful because when you're saying, I don't want to, and they're making you, you know. Yeah, and it's also the idea of squatting. It's not... It's not like a strip search, like they, you know, just take your clothes off and be like, oh, there's nothing there. The fact that they force you to bend over to check your cavity, like the actual act of doing that is obscene. If you really think about how dehumanizing it is, and you think I was 14, 15 at the time, maybe 16 max. Did they contact your parents at that point? No. Wow. And so then you start to realize that these things happen. And it's only as an adult when you apply it to your own children. Like I look at my children who are four and six, and then when I apply my experiences to them, then I realized that it wasn't okay. Um, and so I, I think the knock-on effect is just self-worth. Mm-hmm. And it really shrinks your ability to see yourself in any form of powerful light at all. Um, and, you know, and this is why I was so angry because my daughter's four and I know how incredible she is. And what I've now come to realize is dealing with institutions chips away at that incredibleness. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the institutions. It can happen in your home. It can happen with uh, the pupil, other pupils in your class. But usually it's teachers. I remember some of the stuff my teachers used to say to me was like they can't, like, it was almost like they, they had a high level of contempt for my existence. Wow. And they were in charge of me. And you think to yourself, it's like, if you if you hate me and... You know, some people don't have a great relationship with their parents. Some people don't have a great relationship with the police. And you're dealing with all these institutions and they treat you like this. On what realm would you expect that person to grow up as a healthy adult? And I think the only thing that made me lucky is that I had, and I'm going to swear, but my language is like I had a fuck it button. I had enough at a certain point. And I was just like, ah, if I'm going to be treated like this, I might as well just do what I want. But my do what I want was was confined to what was possible because my mother my mother wasn't <laughs> allowing do whatever you want from a like an, a, an illegal sense it was i'm just gonna just try stuff because i need to get out of this existence um, and that got me far enough to be like have enough time to review my life as an adult and then i started to try and find healthy practices i'm still unworking a lot of those things from 16 i still go through intense rages when some of those behaviors and acts are reenacted against me as an adult. It takes a lot of work um, to, to stand as a, as a sane human being today. But it's common between a lot of black men, actually. 
And we and the podcast that we did that reminded me was between me and two people that grew up in Tottenham. And Tottenham and Hackney have always had this sort of rivalry between the young people in the areas. And they both had very similar experiences to me. And we in real time was discovering how absurd and how violent our upbringing was. Um, and how our interaction with the police and our, our relationship with our teachers and health professionals, how how unloving and obscure it was, how violent it became. So, you know, I think that's my understanding of it. And it, and I, I then have worked harder to protect my children um, from it. So largely all the things that I created now are very much just to create layers of support for my children. And I, I'm, I am now privileged because I have options. Mm. You know, and one of the big things is that, like, very probably very similar to you, Dr. Aziza, however you got to international school, in there is a story of some sort of opportunity that wasn't afforded to everybody. And um, I'm really grateful to, you know, what has been created off of the back of my my negative events. But at this point, I need to pass that on to my children. And my number one thing is I have a button that is going to be pressed if my children face any form of madness. There's a button, then there's a plane ticket attached. There's a relocation package attached. There's a whole like security level. I'll do private school. I would do private tutoring. I would do whatever it takes for them not to have to go through some of those experiences that I went through because I think not everybody is built to survive those types of experience. And I think it shows. Yes. And I think it's really interesting um, seeing it from your view and hearing what you've been through. And what you've spoken about with other black men in your forum. I think uh, for our forum, we've also had um, a bit of discussions, interviewing people about their journeys. And almost always they were let down at some point in their school system. They felt they weren't good enough to even uh, become doctors. And I personally experienced that. I was even asked if... um, uh, we spoke English in Ghana when I, I asked the assistant head teacher to proofread my personal statement. And I was really discouraged to even apply to medical school. So then uh, we often talk about this imposter syndrome that a lot of us medics, even though we've worked our way through all these negativities to get to where we are, we still have that feeling of not, like, not being worthy enough. And it really takes a lot of work so it's so important that we raise awareness so the generations coming up wouldn't have to go through the same things that we went through so that they can at least change the narrative and have better life, better mental health and better well-being overall. So it's so important. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. Um, so many of us have similar stories where, um, unfortunately, we've been denigrated or um, our potential was overlooked um, and we've just had to push past it. I think what you mentioned about um, childhood, childhood plays a massive role in, in what we end up as, as as adults. No matter what will happen, we will always have a trigger. Like you say, there's a button they push the wrong one, something will come out. And this is where therapy comes in. And and this is where um, Child Q's case is really, really, really upsetting because yes, this is something that she's going to need heavy therapy for, heavy counseling, heavy psychological support um, in order to be able to get into adulthood, hopefully without constantly getting that reminder because this is P- it will be PTSD, post-traumatic stress um, disorder every time 
something similar. I mean, we have no idea of the long-term implications, but there will be long-term implications. And when we think about, unfortunately, the funding or the lack of it in this country, how is she going to get the support that she really, really and truly needs? Um, I'm a GP. And um, with the pandemic, unfortunately, there is a backlog anyways. There's always been a, a shortage when it comes to mental health support. But it's even worse now. And a lot of children have seen um, a lot of negative effects of COVID with regards to the impact to their mental health. So, I, I mean, we can only hope and pray that she gets the support that she needs um, and she gets it quickly. Because that's the other thing. The delays are just... Um, but yeah, this is where we really hope that money that we raise uh, towards Just for Kids Law can be implemented to giving the support there, as well as raising awareness of the realities that people face. So you've just mentioned stories that you've experienced, and I, I'm not even going to lie, I, I didn't realize it was it was to that extent. Uh, I mean, there, there's a lot of statistics uh, that we've looked at, Anna, haven't we? And there was one that said that between 2016 and 2021, 9,000 children under 18 have been strip searched. So it's still going on. You said that happened to you, you know, years ago. It's still happening. We yeah. need to keep talking about it. What's really interesting, I was just sitting there thinking um, that I, I, am, I, know, I didn't even really connect that experience to the theme of the topic of the podcast. It happened in real time. I'm just joining the dots as we're speaking. So I'm also partly just thinking like, oh my Lord, like how bad that is um, in real time. Um, but I, I think... If we were to look at, you know, sometimes I don't, I don't necessarily want to put a silver lining on it because I think it's really important that we acknowledge the depths of the the absurdities of what the experience was. But I do think sometimes when we have the gift of the gift of awareness on some of these big topics, like I don't think the context for this conversation would have existed without that coming out in that way. And you know, it, as you say, it's happening to thousands of people all the time. But without that particular story, people wouldn't have questioned. And then it makes schools adjust. It makes the police adjust. And and the thing is, the police and I always think everything the universe has divine timing. So the the metropolitan police for years have been avoiding accountability on their conduct with minority communities. And I feel like there's been a succession of events that have happened and come out, like recording or making jokes about the two dead women that were found in the woods. Um, you know, Girl Q and, you know, the institutional racism, Christopher Dick being having to step down, Sarah Everard, like all these things have just happened in a very short space of time. So people were getting these constant reminders of the failings. There was a, a video of a police officer masturbating in a park in uniform. There's all these things. You saw that too. So, so, so all of these things occurring create urgency. And like, uh, for me, every challenge that every intersection faces is important. But there's a time where things just become urgent. And the urgent would rather be for the intersection for something to happen, or it would be for the people that are oppressing them. And there was an urgent moment around men that happened in the last seven, seven years or so, whether it be Me Too um, or any of those movements, created an urgency. It's always been important. We've always looked at it and been like, are men doing all of those things at the same time? But then at that point of a collective communication on one particular topic, everyone just looks at men different now. And there's no room for men to be those people. If anyone yells out, this man done this, it is immediately a conversation. There is no, he's got power and he's this. It's just now just like, 
you're impacting women or you're impacting children or you're and so our voices are more powerful than they've ever been but i think for that to then move forward from like it's great to say a lot and for there to be a discourse change but action you guys are obviously doing something can you tell us more about what your idea of action looks like so uh with regards to um impact on our community positively we thought we could at least advocate in cope for um child care in this case and that was doing the letter to try and inquire what uh, the government is actually doing and what the met police is actually doing and they did respond uh detailing uh, some of the actions that uh, they've initiated and also they also invited us to come for a meeting to discuss things and also basically they want to hear our thoughts and our ideas and our concerns so we are looking forward to that happening hopefully that will lead somewhere and hopefully that will raise more awareness lead to change we don't know and also raising the funds was also a means of trying to support the charity that is doing this important work i believe there are loads of other charities that are supporting young people going through difficult and challenging times and we also uh, we began a mentoring sh- uh, sorry mentorship scheme we believe that our shared existence will hopefully inspire other people to look at you know us in a different way and aspire to and uh, hopefully um we can get access to them through mentorship and impacts in their lives and maybe help them in a way that we can to help they realize their dreams if they do want to be a doctor or if they want to be something else anything at all i think we had um a talk um during international women's day and a parent uh, spoke to us and uh, told us that she follows our group because of her children just to show her children that they can you know do this and aspire and do that and so there are people doing it something to look forward to and people to look up to so that's how we are gradually trying to help absolutely so um it's the belief of representation matters um that is the reality if you don't see it how do you know that it's actually a possibility so part of what we are here to show as well as um everything that we're doing in support of child q is uh to showcase that there are and, and they really are if you go to our platform a plethora of black female doctors literally breaking glass ceilings so giving them that encouragement that they can be that child cube could well be a doctor one day and we want to be there from that stage because a lot of what we've seen as we say when we've interviewed a lot of black female doctors they've all sim- said similar stories where unfortunately they were discouraged at their that stage so if we can sort of hone in and reach out to them at that stage give the support that they need from there mentor them and then uh, guide them along then we can continue to build such a massive network of educated powerful black female women <laughs> and also i feel like um from university level i always heard that all oh, black people are this everything negative is associated mm-hmm. with black people even from mm-hmm. disease progression disease development mm-hmm. to like attitude and societal influences everything negative i felt was like attributed to us 
we are from the lowest socioeconomic backgrounds and so many negative things. So it would be really good if we all come together and change the narrative, you know, and hopefully there'll be positive things coming up from our community henceforth. I hear you. It's, it's so interesting because when we started off with Dope Black Dads, one of the first headlines we had was changing the narrative. And after about eight months, I, I, a part of me just felt disconnected from it because um, I, every, every black person I knew was gangbusters. There was no slouches. Everyone was doing something. I don't care if you're doing community work, you're frontline driving a bus, but you also got an and. You're also trying to do something else. You're researching yourself over there. You've got another education string going on. You're learning about THC and trying to start your own farm. Whatever the thing you were doing, there was just people that were really proactive and um, trying to do the best, constantly trying to move into better in their outcomes. So we really focused on how we were going to help people better in their outcomes. And the first thing is just like, yes, education, but also keeping together. And so for us, like our goal now is just to be a quiet, consistent partner in people's lives that guide them through life because that's the thing that I needed. And there was a point where it's like, there's a day when you realize that life is not working for you. And then you think to yourself, what am I going to do about it? And there's all these help books that are written in like traditions centered in whiteness or East Asian understandings or hyper capitalism, Americanism. And you're like, I, this doesn't apply to me. There's no cultural nuance in any of those books that connect to the specific experience that you have had. They're just ideas. And then as we go to exercise them, we usually find ourselves getting tripped up by multiple things, like even things about like rich dad, poor dad. All the elements in there, there's so many elements in there that disconnect from the things like black tax. None of them consider that. If I make 50,000 pounds a year, 12% of that probably goes to my family somehow. You know, it's not like I make 50,000 and how I'm going to divide my money is A, B, C, and D. It's like, no, 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 because you've got elders and family members who have helped raise you that need some of that. You have people back in a, another country that are dependent on you. They don't understand what the psychological pressure is of being the the best, the, the main, um, uh, uh, the most successful person in your family. They don't talk about these things because it doesn't come up for them because they're generationally wealthy. And they make everything about self-determination and you know about you and what you choose to do and your bad habits and you bought a cup of coffee so you can't buy a house all of these things that are just absurd and they just ignore us so for me finding real code that's connected to who we are because i'm not going to abandon my family to become rich for myself it's unworkable and so i think like you know you're right there is a large part of it that is just connected to us being and and how we treat and deal with each other but i think also just about how we create our own visions like because within blackness there'll be many visions of how we should do things and i never want to silence one 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 person's vision in blackness for mine and so it's always about creating space for that and i think until we really find uh, a culture where black women lgbtqia and disabled people are really seen and heard powerfully um, we'll always end up tripping up. And, and I think I, that centers in the black family also. I always say to Anna that um, one thing that we can do as a community is genuinely is just to unite, to stand in solidarity as one. Because um, if we do, we're stronger together. We can impact change in a much broader way. As you say, um, it's not about silencing one person over the other, being better than that person and so on and so forth. It's all about uniting so that we can make a change 
that will benefit us all. And we can really only do that together. And this is why I'm really grateful for your partnership. And I mean, your uh, your passion echoes <laughs> through this conversation because we, yeah, we can make a change together. We can make a, take a stand together. Amazing. Thank you both for coming down today. It really means a, a lot to have you here. Um, and also just for people that were listening, sorry it took so long to say those things. As you can see, there is probably reasons why, but I do think it's a really important conversation. Uh, where can people find you and what do you need people to actually do? What's the practical element? So um, currently we are mainly on Instagram, just Black Female Doctors. And we have a link tree that gives access to some of the things that we are doing. So if you want to apply for a mentorship scheme or if you know someone that you want to refer, or if you want to just follow us and support us. Uh, we have some events coming up um, towards way, way down the course of the year. I would have like a fundraising gala towards the end of the year, which is coming up as well. And yeah, we will be organizing some health talks as well that we're going to share the link for people to join just because we have a lot of different specialists in the committee. So if we pick an organ, you'll be hearing from the expert that takes care of that organ. So we will share the links um, on our platform. But with regards to Child Q, if you want to give something to support us, please go to um, our website. So our Instagram page, there is a link that takes you directly to the fundraising page to donate something to support. Yeah. And our handle is blackfemaledoctors.uk. Also, you can contact us um, through our email, which is blackfemaledoctorsuk at gmail.com. Um, please do click onto the Just Giving link. Uh, we are, I think we're over 20% of the way. We're trying to raise at least 5,000 pounds. So if you can do that, that would be brilliant. Follow us, share, um, share as much as possible. We're here for everyone. <laughs> Amazing. Look, I really appreciate it. One of my favorite things is I feel a part of the experience now and the evolution is that black women are intentionally holding space un under their own identification, like black women are doing these things. I think in the UK crisis, there was black women for black people movement who were raising money. I think they raised a significant amount of money. And I think it's really important that we see the the actual, the, the, the impact, the actual changes that black women are trying to make intentionally. So I'm really honored to be able to share our platform with you. And I hope our audience listen and become intentional and actionable, as I will. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Aziza. Thank you so much, Dr. Anna. Very much appreciate you. If you need anything else from us and our network, feel free to get in touch and we, we've got you. Okay. Thank you we very much you. for thank having you. us. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Dope, Dope Black Podcast.